So when, just as a, before I jump into that, you know, when we deal with God's Word, there's a sense in which we're, we're, we're handling the, God of, um, the God's Word and we're asking the question, um, what is God's Word saying? And that's, that's an objective thing. God's Word says something very objective that we want to know, we want to understand, and we want to apply to our lives, we want to apply to the world around us and, and everything like that. But that's not the only question we, we ask when we, when we open up God's Word. We're not just asking the question, what is God saying here in the Word? We're also saying, how is God applying this to my life? Um, and, you know, when, you, when you're sitting here this uh, morning and you're hearing the Word of God being preached and we're reading Scripture together, it's just amazing what you'll find the Holy Spirit doing. You know, we're all looking at the same objective truth, but you'll find one person over here gets that truth applied to this particular area of their lives and they get really convicted, or this person over there has this truth applied to their lives and they're really encouraged, or this person over here has it applied to them in a, in a totally different way. And so this morning you're not just listening um, with the ears of saying, okay, what is God's Word saying objectively? But you're also listening with the ears of saying, Holy Spirit, what are you specifically saying through this truth to me? And how should I apply that to my life? And how should I walk out of here today different? Or, or viewing you in a more accurate way? Or thinking of myself in a more right way? Um, so that's really important to please be paying attention throughout the entirety of the sermon, asking the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Even if you could just regularly, like every five minutes, just check in with the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? How should I be applying this to my life? And you'll actually find that God will be speaking to you as you're aware of His, of His voice. Um, okay, so to the sermon, um, looking at godly leadership. So I've got just some thoughts on godly leadership here today and what that actually looks like. Because, you know, when it, when it comes to leadership, um, just like anything, really, um, or just like most things, there's a way that you do it in the kingdom of God, and there's a way that you do it in the world. Um, so if you think about other things such as finances, there's a way that the world does finances, and there's, the way, there's a way that Christians should be doing finances, and it should be looking very different. Um, there's a way that the world does, does marriage, and there's a way that Christians do marriage. And it should be looking very different. There's a way that the world raises children. There's a way that Christians raise children. There's a way that the world does business. And there's a way that Christians do business. If this isn't obvious to you yet, we are as pilgrims actually living in a foreign land. We are, we are living in a society, in a city, in a country, in whatever you want to call it, that is actually not our homeland. So the, what, what God, um, God's Word tells us is that we are like pilgrims just passing through. Our home isn't here. We are heading towards a heavenly city. We are heading towards a different kingdom, and we are living in the midst of this world according to the ways of that world. And so that makes us look very different from the world and the society and the culture in which we find ourselves. So if it applies to finances, if it applies to business, if it applies to family, if it applies to marriage, then of course it should apply to the way that we think about leadership as well. There's a way that you do kingdom leadership and there's a way that you do worldly leadership. Now what is so important is that as we grow in maturity as Christians, we need to be able to discern the difference between the two. And the Bible tells us that one of the marks of Christian maturity is the ability to discern between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. So newborn Christians, if we don't put massive burdens on their shoulders and huge expectations on them and, and um, expect that they're going to be able to really quickly discern all these things, no, it comes through the process of growth. It comes through the process of, of learning. It comes through the process of experiencing the things of God that you grow in your ability to discern the difference between the two. 
Now, but just because a newborn Christian will find it hard, it doesn't mean that it's okay to stay in that place of finding it hard. As we grow into maturity, it needs to become easier and easier to spot the difference between the two. Now, this matters. This matters a lot. This makes a, a huge difference to the way that you live your Christian life. You can simply think about it, let's think about it in a, non, in a non-spiritual category, in a non-spiritual sense. It matters a lot to be able to discern the difference between food that is off and food that is, 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 is good for eating. You know, just um, during, during COVID, we went and stayed up at my um, folks' house for a little bit. And um, my sister makes these incredible dumplings, these incredible pork dumplings. And um, I love dumplings. I'm very passionate about dumplings. Um, and so she'd been talking up these dumplings about how great they are, how, how, how wonderful they taste. Um, she kept rubbing it in my face every time she cooked them when I wasn't there to eat them with her. And so I was really excited because finally we're, we're in lockdown together and now she's going to cook some dumplings. And so um, she starts making the dumplings and um, who was it? I think it was, was it Jesse, was it you that first smelt it? And she was like, I just don't think this, um, pork is, this pork is good for eating. It just smells off to me. And they're like, oh, no, it should be all right. It should be fine. And um, so we go through all the effort of making the dumplings, folding them carefully one by one. We cook the dumplings. And then poor old Bryn, with his, with his, with his stomach that's, that's already doing great, um, um, was the first to bite into one of the dumplings and instantly said, these dumplings are not okay. Um, and so Jesse had smelt that they weren't okay. Bryn then confirmed by tasting them that they weren't okay. Unfortunately, no one else had to eat any of the dumplings. Now, I'm very grateful for Jesse and very grateful for um, Bryn, who took one for the team, um, um, that I didn't end up eating those dumplings because I'm not actually so confident that my ability to discern whether the meat is, is good or not is, would have been as accurate as theirs. And I probably would just would have chowed down on those dumplings and then very much regretted it in the middle of the night. In fact, just this week, <laughs> just this week, um, um, you know those little yogurt sachets that the um, kids have? That, the, that you put in like the lunch boxes and things so you can just like squeeze it out, you get, like the little sachets, pouches that um, you give for like baby food. Um, so we have, like, we have these yogurt pouches that we give to the kids. And uh, I think one of the kids' yogurt pouches must have gone to school and then returned back and then um, somehow made its way back into the fridge. Um, Jessie is, is adamant that it wasn't because of her. Um, and I, I, I'm probably going to believe that because I would mindlessly just unpack the yogurt pouch and put it, back, put it back in the fridge. But yeah, so I went and grabbed this yogurt pouch for myself for my lunch and then um, didn't refrigerate it and took it with me until about the middle of the day. And then I decided to have the yogurt and I'm, and I'm, <laughs> I'm eating this yogurt and it's got chunks. And I'm like, man, the banana chunks in this yogurt pouch. <laughs> in this yogurt pouch. I don't I can't remember there being banana chunks in here before. And so I just smashed that yogurt down. And uh, for, the, for the rest of the afternoon and the evening, I just had these massive stomach cramps. Anyway, um, that was just a, a story along the way. Um, to try and highlight for you how important it is to be able to discern <laughs> the difference between good and bad. And that's an illustration taken from food. And how much more so does it apply for us when it comes to the things of the kingdom of God? Because these things are a matter, I guess food poisoning could be a matter of life and death. But these spiritual matters, these things of the the, the kingdom versus the things of the kingdom of the world are absolutely a matter of life and death for us. And so growing into these things, maturing in these things, learning these things, we as Christians need to discern the difference. Now, this doesn't just apply 
to leadership when it, um, as it exists in the, in the church. Of course, it applies to leadership as it exists in the church. It applies to how, how pastors hold themselves. It applies to how evangelists hold themselves. It applies to how you manage everything that happens here administratively within the life of the church. Yeah, it applies to those sorts of things. But it also applies to how you run your business. And it also applies to politics. And it also applies to how you handle the classroom as a teacher or how you as a parent, whether you're the mother or the father, how you relate to your children. These principles of leadership that we're going to talk about today are universal. And we should see these principles of leadership um, um, on display in all the different areas because the wisdom of God applies to all these different areas. So I've got four points for us that I want us to focus on this, this, this morning. And the first one is that godly leaders... Understand that greatness is about servant-heartedness. Godly leaders understand that greatness is about servant-heartedness. So Luke chapter 22, verse 24 to verse 27. I think we've got the scriptures there. Thank you so much, techie team, for always being on top of it. Um, reading from the Christian Standard Bible, it says this, Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest, But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves um, called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." So Jesus is taking the wisdom of the world. He's saying, all of you understand the wisdom of the world. You know how things operate in the world. The greatest amongst us are the ones who have people serving them. The greatest among us are the ones who get to benefit from other people's um, giving and from other people's efforts and from other people's time. They're the greatest. The greatest among us are those that have, have other people making much of them. Jesus says, you guys all understand that says, but when it comes to my kingdom, you need to understand that it's entirely upside down. It doesn't work like that. And he says, the way that you can know this for sure is by simply looking at my life. He said, if it is true that the greatest among you is the one who has everyone serving them, then why is it that I am amongst you as a servant? Now, you've got to understand that this is a pretty significant thing for Jesus to be um, saying at this, at this moment, because this is the this is the night right before his crucifixion. Um, so he's gathered with all the disciples, and they're having their final meal together. He's giving them um, um, his final instructions, and he is about to go and lay down his life in the greatest act of service that mankind will ever see. He will go and be nailed to a cross as though he were a sinner, as though he were a criminal, as though he was guilty when he was none of those things, and he would do it in order to save you and I, in order to make a way for you and I to be re- um, redeemed. He would demonstrate for us what true greatness actually looks like. And therein we discover that true greatness looks like laying down your life for other people. Now, it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny because, um, you know, these disciples had, had, had walked with Jesus for, for three years now. Um, they, had, they had seen His life day in, day out. They'd, they'd no doubt heard this teaching multiple times before. We know that for certain because we've got other accounts in the Gospels of where he teaches, this, them, the, teaches them this principle earlier on. But here they are after those three years, and they're still not quite getting it because they're sitting there, 
as best of mates around a meal, and they're arguing with one another about who's the greatest amongst them, about, about who's the best amongst them. I, I'm not exactly sure what the content of that argument was like, but maybe they're arguing about who's cast out more demons or who'd, who's healed more sick people or, or who's going to be a, a better a leader in the future in some great revolution that Jesus is starting up. I don't know exactly what they were arguing about, but in the way that we tend to do as human beings, they were posturing, they were puffing out their chest, they were trying to find a way of getting one up on each other so that they could be seen as the better one, as the greater one. But Jesus says this is absolutely not how things work within his kingdom. It's absolutely not. But I think at that point, we need to, you need to recognize that, that this way of acting and this way of thinking is so deeply ingrained inside all of us that you could be like the disciples, three years with Jesus, hearing from him with your very own ears, watching him with your very own eyes, and still after three years, you're still going about trying to prove how awesome you are by getting one up on other people. This is how deeply ingrained this mess is in all of our hearts, in, in all of our hearts, no exception. I see this ugly thing in my own heart still, even though I've been in Christian ministry all these years and I've known better. I still see it in my heart, even though I've been walking for Jesus for, with Jesus for as long as I can remember. I still see this stuff in my heart. But I know that I'm not alone in this because I know it applies to all of us in this room this day. Now, um, in Luke 22, we read, we read how Jesus corrects him by um, saying to him, yeah, but the greatest is really the one who serves. But... When you look at um, John 13, which probably happened, I assume, after this conversation here in Luke 22, because John 13 is also in the room with the disciples the evening before Christ's crucifixion, we read in John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Verse 12, verse 15, of the same chapter then says, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Now, I highly doubt the disciples got into that argument later that we saw in Luke 22 after this whole acting out experience here in John 13. If you ask me, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know the, 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 the chronology of it. But if you ask me, it looks like they had this argument with one another. Jesus corrects them. And then this is part of his correction to them. And it's so amazing because Jesus, he... Um, the picture that we have here is, is of Jesus literally stooping to the lowest of the lowest place within society in an act of service for his disciples. When he gets down and washes these disciples' feet, he's doing something that the lowest rank within the group of servants would have, would have, would have done. In fact, a Jewish servant would not even get on his hands and knees and wash another Jew's feet. He wouldn't do that because he would see that as far too low, as far too um, below his status. But here is Jesus taking on this, this, this lowest of low positions in order to, to serve his disciples. And he says that this is the picture 
of what it ought to look like for you and I in the kingdom of God. If I, as your Lord, and if I, as your teacher, am willing to wash your feet, then how much more so should you as my disciples? So when it comes to leadership, these principles do not get thrown out the window. And this is how we tend to think, right, as the world. The world is like, okay, well, you might start off at the bottom rung, and you might be the foot-washing guy. Like, you might be everyone else's runaround. You might be everyone else's slave. You, right? Everyone else gets to tell you what to do, and, and you don't have any particular value within the company or within the church or whatever else. But the better you get and the more time you hang around, you know, you get some status, you get some accomplishments, you, you um, um, get some um, noteworthy things about you, then more and more you don't have to be the servant. More and more you get to use your power, you get to use your authority, and you get to use that to have the way over other people. But Jesus, this is not how it works in the kingdom. In fact, the more you are truly a leader in the kingdom, the more you are truly a servant. So this is so incredibly important for us to understand. So incredibly important for us to understand. There's one thing I want to draw your attention to here that just blows my mind every time I read it. It's in verse 3. So just going back, John 13, verse 3. Jesus says, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around his waist. Did anyone notice anything weird in those two verses? Anything that just flies right in the face of worldly wisdom. It says that Jesus knew that everything had been entrusted to him. Right? That he's in charge of everything. That God had given him absolutely everything. That he is the name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus knew these things. And then it says, verse 4, So he got up from supper, laid aside his um, outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Isn't that the weirdest so that you've ever seen in two sentences? Jesus, knowing that he was the greatest, therefore went and took the position of the lowliest amongst the disciples. Jesus, knowing that he was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that everything had been entrusted to him, went and took the position that no one else is willing to take, and he acted like a servant. But that's exactly what it needs to look like in the kingdom of God. Exactly what it needs to look like. Godly leaders don't lead for their own sake. They don't lead so that they can dominate over other people. Godly leaders don't lead so that they can be made much of, so that they can be exalted. Godly leaders are, are always leading with a servant heart. They are in those positions purely because they want to bless the people that they are responsible for. And that should be evident in the way that they live their lives. So that's the first point. The second point I want to make is that godly leaders don't find their worth, significance, identity, or security in being leaders. A godly leader doesn't need to have a position or a title or an office or a bunch of people following them in order for them to be happy and content. Because godly leaders don't look to their position of leadership as their source of life. We make that very clear. Godly leaders don't look to their position of leadership as their source of life. Whenever you find a leader that is looking to their leadership as their source of identity 
or as their source of worth, or as their source of significance, or as their source of security, you're going to see something that will inevitably turn out very, very ugly. It'll inevitably turn up very, very ugly. Because essentially what that leader is doing is he's taking his position and he's going and making an idol out of it. The idols in your life are the things that you look to as a source of life. And what happens when someone touches the idols in your life? You always get angry. You always get upset. You always get bitter. You always get frustrated. It doesn't matter what it is. Any idol that you've got in your life, if someone comes and they try to hinder you from enjoying that idol, or they try to take that idol from you, or they get in the way between you and your idol, you are going to get upset and angry and frustrated. And so you see this in leadership all the time. All the time. Some guy's got a position in the business, and one of the employees doesn't show enough honor to them in their position of leadership. That leader feels that, that, that he's been offended because he hasn't been shown enough honor. And so he lashes out. He cracks down. He raises his voice. He threatens a whole bunch of things because his idol has been touched. Unfortunately, you see it in church life all the time as well. You know, there's, there's some guy that's in leadership and, um, and someone shows up in his congregation that's carrying a particular gifting that's intimidating to him in his position of leadership. That guy's gifting, he's, he feels threatened that it's going to outshine his own gifting. So what does that leader do? He starts ostracizing that guy. He starts pushing him out of the church. He starts withholding opportunities from that guy because he feels threatened that his idol is going to get taken away from him. And it gets really, really ugly. Now, you can apply this to whatever you want to apply. You know, you can just look at what's going on in politics at the moment. You know, between the different parties, those that are in a position of leadership, they've got this role, they've got this position, they're looking to that, for, um, to that position of leadership as a source of life, and now that they're being threatened because someone from the other political party is going to take it away from them, what are they doing? They're acting just as the world would act. The works of the flesh can be abundantly seen all over the place. Now we see this in all over God's word. You see this in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he builds his idol for himself. And those that don't want to bow down to his idol and pray to him, there's consequences for them. You see this with King Herod. King Herod finds out that the Messiah has been born. What does King Herod do? Let's go and kill all the newborn baby boys just in case the Messiah is going to come from those people and he's going to challenge my position of, of leadership. You see this with Pilate. Pilate interviews Jesus to see whether there's anything wrong with him. Pilate says over and over again, I can't find anything wrong with Jesus. But Pilate, out of concern for protecting his own position of leadership within Roman government, he doesn't want the Jews causing too much drama because that's going to cause him bad consequences in his position of leadership. He decides that he will allow Jesus to go and be crucified. That's all because he's trying to protect that status, that identity, that sense of worth, that sense of security that he's finding in the position of leadership. But godly leadership is not like that. Godly leadership can be in a position where they have influence 
or they, they don't have to be in the position. They can be in charge or they don't have to be in charge. They can be influencing hundreds of people or they can be influencing one, people, one person and that makes no difference to how happy they are, how content they are, how at peace they are. It makes no difference. They don't lose sleep over it. They don't worry about it. They're not trying to grab at power. It makes no difference to them. So that's the second point I wanted to highlight here. The godly leaders don't find their worth, significance, identity, or security in being leaders. The third point I want to highlight is that godly leaders do not make use of control, manipulation, or domination in order to lead. This is a really important point. Godly leaders do not make use of control, manipulation, or domination in order to lead. You know, yesterday I was at, a, um, um, I was at this uh, Bucks party and I was sitting opposite... The, um, we went out for lunch in the afternoon. I was sitting opposite the table of a guy that was telling me um, about this horrific um, um, chippy apprenticeship that he that he had, and he was telling me that he had this he had this boss that would um, if they weren't um, working fast enough, this um, boss was like would regularly take tools and would like take hammers at one point even took the nail gun and he would throw it at the apprentices because they weren't working fast enough um and he said this one time he even threw him with a hammer and he showed me he's still got the scar on his on his arm where he was entirely ripped open by this hammer and the boss just said to him if you go and get that thing stitched up and don't finish off this job just don't consider coming back tomorrow and um it He's still got this massive scar on his, on his, on his arm on, on account of it. Now, that's a pretty drastic example, right? Of someone that is using control, manipulation, and domination in order to lead, right? The fellas on the work site aren't working fast enough, and so throw some stuff at them and, um, and intimidate them and make them work harder. But that guy was a bit violent, but we all know that it doesn't only manifest in violence, right? There's, there's, there's all sorts of yelling there's all sorts of lies that are told. There's all sorts of things said behind people's backs. There's, um, um, there's ways of um, intimidating them um, by taking their role off of them. Like all sorts of things that you see happening in the world that is basically just people using manipulation and control and domination in order to get their own way in leadership. It happens all over the place. But when you look at God's Word, you see that that's absolutely not how leadership takes place when it is done the right way. So James chapter 3, verse 13 and verse 18 tells us, who, is wise, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. To so notice that. His good conduct, by his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So the world will rely upon control, manipulation, and domination in order to have their way. 
But James tells us here that when in the church, you shouldn't see any of that taking place. Because in the church, it's about gentleness. In the church, it's about being peace-loving. In the church, it's about patiently sowing and cultivating the fruit of righteousness. Now, this is really important that James highlights this here in James chapter 3, because they've got an issue with false teachers in, in Jerusalem. And many of these false teachers were, um, were basically posturing in the way that the world would posture, the worldly leadership would posture. They were looking down upon others. They were, they were pretending as though they were thinking rightly about everything, about their way was the better way than everyone else. And through that, they were trying to manipulate and they were trying to control. And what James is saying here is that, guys, it should be obvious to you that the wisdom these guys claim to have isn't actually the wisdom of God, but it's really a, dem a, a demonic form of wisdom. Because the way that they're going about trying to lead you is not gentle, it's not peace-loving, it's not patiently sowing and cultivating righteousness. It should be obvious to you. And so we should be able to look at, um, at any type of leadership, once again, whether it's in the house, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the church, and you should be able to look at it and go, hey, what spirit is actually at work behind this leadership? Is it the Holy Spirit? Because I can see the fruit of the Holy Spirit on display in the way that this person leads. Or is it a demonic spirit, the spirit of the world that is at work here, in opposition to the ways of God? When God leads us, God always leads in the way of love. He's never going to compromise the way of love. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 to verse 7 says, Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that applies to leadership. And that's how Jesus leads. That's how God leads. That's the way that you and I are supposed to lead. Love leads through gentle influence, not control. Love leads through patience and not domination. Love leads through truth and not through deception and not through manipulation. And that is the way that God wants us to lead. Now, I think part of the problem, part of the problem is that we want immediate results. We want immediate change. We want people to immediately come into line and start doing the right thing. Now, as parents, we experience this all the time, all the time. This is where I see it. This is where I struggle the most with this in my life, um, is that the kids are acting out of line. You know, you've told them six or seven times to, to get in the car with their shoes and strap themselves in. But still, they're running around outside without their shoes on, with their shirt back to front. You know, like, like everything's just going wrong. You're already in a rush to get out of the house uh, because you're running late for church. And it's just, it's a, it's a mess, right? Now, in that moment, you have a decision to make. Are you going to lead the situation in a way that's consistent with the wisdom of God? Or are you going to lead this situation in a way that's consistent with the wisdom of the world? Now, as I'm sure you all can already recognize, the one that I'm struggling with not doing 
is leading in that situation in a way that's consistent with the wisdom of the world. By coming down on them real hard, raising my voice. What's that? It's a form of intimidation. That's why we do it. You know, you got your little kids there. You start yelling at them. You start raising your voice. You start acting all strong and threatening like you're going to smack them any moment. What are you doing? You're just intimidating. That's all you're doing. Right? Because you're trying to get them into line. You might even end up smacking them and you're telling yourself, I'm doing it for their good. Because you're trying to, trying to teach them a really important lesson, you know. Kids that aren't disciplined are going to become wayward kids. But why are you smacking them? If you, if you were to sit on that for the next two hours and wait till, you're, till, you're, till you've calmed down a little bit and you're not feeling angry anymore, do you think it's still necessary to smack them after the two hours? Most of the time, not. You can think of a much better way of teaching them a lesson. That's just an example where we see this stuff showing up in our, in our, in our lives. And we've got a decision to make. Are we going to lead in the ways of the wisdom of God or lead in the ways of the wisdom of the world? Now, God never uses manipulation, control, or, or domination. That way of leading, it should be obvious to us, but it's exactly how Satan always leads. It's exactly how the kingdom of darkness operates. It's exactly how the principalities and powers that are at work in the spirit realm and the forces of evil work. They're not working with one another in a, in a, in a lovely unit where, they, where, they, where they're gentle towards one another and understanding towards one another. Like the spirits that, that, are, that are follow Satan are not following him because they think he's a glorious leader and they admire his character. It's all to do with domination. It's all to do with control. And so it makes sense then when that from the spirit realm spills over into the world and the way that the world operates, right? It's going to look just like the kingdom of Satan. But in the kingdom of God, the way that God leads, the way that Jesus leads, you'll see that it'll always be done with a heart of love. And the fourth point I want to make this morning is that godly leadership is focused on raising others up and is not intimidated by the gifting, anointing, and calling on others' lives. What you will find with someone that leads in the ways of the world is that they'll get their little position, they'll get their little title, you know, they'll get their influence over a bunch of people, and they're going to try and protect it and hold on to it, and they don't want other people coming in and taking it off of them. They're totally intimidated by people that come in with giftings and callings and experience that they think is going to affect their ability to lead. But in the kingdom of God, leaders, when they find someone else that's more suited to the role than them, they don't mind just getting out of the way. Like, if you could do a better job at leading this thing than me, then please come and lead this thing for me. Or if, or if, 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 if you can come on the team and make this thing run better than what it's running this very moment, then please come on the team and make this thing run better. A godly leader doesn't care that they're going to be left outside the, um, or out of the spotlight. They don't care. They don't care that someone else's name is going to be remembered. That makes no difference to them. They don't care that they're the ones that started it. And so therefore, they got to be the ones that see it through. They don't care about that stuff. Whatever's going to be the best thing for people, for the company, for the church, for the glory of God, that is what they want. 
And so what you find then is that in godly leadership, instead of being like this, this, some tyrant or this king that just expects people to get in underneath them and, and get behind what they want to do and how they want to run things, what you find is that the godly leadership actually ends up looking far more like a father. A good father, that is. A loving father, that is. You know, what does a, what does a loving father do? What does a good father do? When a good father spots something awesome in their kid, does that good father get intimidated? You go, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to suppress this gift that I see in my child's life because you know it might eventually end up outshining my gift. No, they don't do that. A good father spots that gift and goes, whoa, how can I create space for this? How can I celebrate this? How can I, how can I champion this? Like, oh my goodness, look at how good, look at how good my kid is at sport. Let me, let me get them involved into some extra curricular programs so they can get better at sport. Oh my goodness, look at, look at how good they are in music. Let me sign them up so they can go get some more training so they can get even better at music. A good father spots the giftings in their child's life and he asks himself the question, how can I champion this? How can I encourage this? How can I get behind it? A good father wants their children to stand upon their shoulders and to reach much higher than what they could have reached by themselves. That's what a good father wants. And that's exactly what good leadership does. A good leader is willing to lay down their lives and go, I don't care how many people stand on me or step on me, as long as they can reach higher than what I was able to reach by myself. As, lo as long as their gifts are championed, as long as their calling and anointing has opportunity to flourish. I'm going to read to you this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 12, where you can see this in the way that, that Paul relates to these Christians at Thessalonica. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. So we see that he does, he's not interested in manipulation. He's not interested, interested in control. He doesn't want any of that. Verse 5 says, For we never use flattering speech, so that we see it again. As you know, or had greedy motives, God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Exactly what I was saying before, right? This is a picture of godly leadership. Verse 7, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. So he says, we, we had a position of leadership. We're the apostles. I could, have, I could have lorded it over you. I could have dominated. I could have demanded that you fall into line. He says, but instead, we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. Verse 8, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. He loves these people. He's willing to not just share his life with them, he's willing to lay down his entire life for them and share everything about of who he is and what he has with these people. Verse 9, for you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters. 
working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. Verse 11, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged you and comforted you and implored each one of you to work worthy of God, walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What an awesome picture of what godly leadership looks like. I wasn't dominating, I wasn't manipulating, I wasn't trying to control, I was gentle with you like a nursing mother. And not only that, but like a good father, I encouraged you and I comforted you and I implored each of you to walk in a way that is worthy of God. And that is what you will see in good leadership, no matter where this person is. Whether, once again, like it's in the home, in politics, in the church, or in business. That's what good leadership looks like. Now, it costs you. Absolutely, it costs you. You've got to be patient with the mess in people's lives. You've got to wait for change to take place in them. It costs you time and, and effort because you've got to be intentional about sowing into them, helping them journey. It costs you the limelight. And it costs you the glory, and it costs you your pride, and the recognition that you were hoping for. It costs you all those things. But if you really want to build something that looks like the kingdom of God, that's the only way to build it. And so, as I wrap things up here this morning, I don't want any of you to think that, that leadership is a necessary thing for godliness. That's not true at all. Some, I've been in, involved in some Christian circles where they act as though, you know, um, your measure of godliness is the measure of how much leadership you have. And if you grow in godliness, you're necessarily going to also grow in, in, in um, leadership. And that's, that's, that's not the case at all. Um, in fact, the Bible teaches the opposite and actually says, hey, don't be hasty to jump into leadership. He says, hey, be really careful before you appoint other people into, into positions of leadership. And she says, hey, watch your own heart so carefully that you don't find any selfish ambition or any competitiveness or any desire to lord yourself over other people. In fact, the Bible really warns about rushing into leadership. The measure of godliness is not whether you're in leadership. The measure of godliness is servant-heartedness. And some people with that servant-hearted spirit will find themselves in positions of leadership and hopefully they will serve well from that position of leadership and others won't. And that is entirely okay. You don't have to feel any pressure to lead. Live the servant life that you've been called to live and that testimony in and of itself will lead people and will affect people and will influence people. You don't need positions and titles as you grow in godliness. And so, to wrap things up here, if all of that just went entirely over your head, and you're like, oh man, I, uh, I can't even remember the points that he made this morning. If I could just tell you one thing, and that is that leadership needs to look like Jesus. You know, I could have just, just stood up here today and just said that, right, instead of saying everything else that I ended up saying this morning. And if you went and applied it to your life, you would have done pretty well, pretty good. But leadership at the end of the day needs to look like Jesus. 
straight and simple. You see a leader that doesn't lead the way that Jesus led, he, that leader's not leading with the wisdom of God. You see things in your own life that don't look like Jesus, then that way of thinking is not the thinking of God. Bible's really, really clear to us that the wisdom of God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus Christ. He's the picture for us of what God looks like, and He's the picture of what God wants us to look like. And so let me just um, invite the music team to come on up. That would be great. Can you all please stand with me? Maybe just take a moment just to ask the Holy Spirit how, um, how all of that applies to your life. Just take a moment to open up your heart to God and say, God, how should I be applying these things to me? In the way that you lead in your business or you know, as a father, the way that you relate to your wife and your children or if you're running a ministry here in this church or outside of the church, as it relates to that, maybe even as it relates to your ambitions and the things that you're working for, the things you're striving for, maybe you're just striving for things that are fundamentally ungodly. You're you're trying to get positions of power and influence and and prestige. And maybe God's saying, hey, that's, that's not what I want you to be pursuing at all. and read those four points again just allow you just to meditate on them as they apply to you first point is that godly leaders understand that greatness is about servant heartedness that's what true greatness is godly leaders don't find their worth significance identity or security in being leaders Godly leaders do not make use of control, manipulation, or domination in order to lead. Godly leadership is focused on raising others up and is not intimidated by their gifting, anointing, and calling. So God, we, Lord, at the heart of our request here this morning is that you would just make us more like Jesus. Lord, whatever way, Lord, this very morning, our lives are not aligned with the wisdom of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, the way that you operate in your kingdom. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to deal with that this morning. Lord, cut away everything that is not of you. Give us a heart that is like your heart. God, we want to ask you, for forgiveness for every way in which we have failed to lead in a way that would display the goodness of your character. I want to ask God that you would purge us of all our iniquity, Lord, and wash us and make us whiter than snow. 
Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit would, would change us and give us the power that we need to live changed lives. And even, Lord, this, this morning, I just want to dedicate our church to you afresh once again and ask, God, that whatever happens here as we move forward as a church, Lord, from, from the pastoral team, Lord, all the way to those that are serving in the kitchen and those that are doing the gardens and, and those that are out there in the community, going from door to door, whatever place we find ourselves in, Lord, we just see to it that your kingdom permeates everything. Lord, that your way of leading with love saturates everything that we do as a church. Please protect us, God, from the wisdom of the world. Protect us from the ways of the enemy. Keep us focused on you, we pray, Lord. We commit ourselves to you. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.